Welcome back to How AI Built This with me, Liam Wilson. As always, massive shout out to Cathcart Associates um, for not only sponsoring the podcast, but also just letting me do it as part of my day job, which is pretty awesome. On this episode, we have Adam Schrocker, uh, who's the Director of Data and AI Incremental Group in Glasgow um, and indeed Manchester. I had to have Adam on after listening to him at multiple talks and conferences, really engaging, down to earth, pretty much just a, an all-round great guy. Um, so we'll go through his life, not only in data, but also uh, as a professional bartender in academia, uh, working for startups, um, insurance companies, uh, and now on to where he is now, um, Director of Data and AI Incremental Group. So without further ado, please welcome Adam Schroker. Welcome to the show. We've got Adam Schroker from Incremental Group. Happy to be here. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So Data and AI Director, but we'll get to that. Just before we started recording, I said this will be a re- relaxed show. Um, so we'll start at the start. A chemistry degree. Chemistry, yeah. Um, always knew you were going to do that? I was thinking about going into medicine, actually, and then uh, last minute, sort of change of course, didn't quite get the grades I was hoping for, um, but I really enjoyed chemistry, so went on to do that instead. Um, turns out chemistry is really hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you find this out once you'd started the degree? Yeah, re- like it was all right at A-level, but yeah, it's rock hard at, at uni, so... I'll admit to everyone listening that I wasn't even allowed to do A-level or higher science at school, so I didn't even consider chemistry as an option, so um, you've already done well there. Did you enjoy it? I, yeah, yeah, I did. It was good for a bit, um, and then towards the end I was quite I was quite glad to finish it. Um, I also, like a lot of people, fell in love with going out, and uh, <laughs> I was actually a professional bartender for quite a while. I travelled around Europe doing competitions. Oh, wow, like cocktails or something? Yeah, making cocktails, won a few awards, uh, which... Oh, what's is, the go-to cocktail? Mine. Or the signature? Uh, oh, signature. There's a drink called an American Beauty, which is a bit odd if you read the ingredients list, but it's a uh, very nice. Del de Groff's crafted cocktail. Um, but yeah, fell in love with that. I did that for a few years um, and then slowly realised that I'm never going to make enough money to sort of own my own bar working in one because uh, I wasn't that talented. That was all right. Um, so I went back to uni and thought I'd get a proper job. So, was it, so in between chemistry, you did the professional bartending, yeah, and, came, four years. and I came back and did the masters. Yeah. So it was the, the, the big push there was that it was the last year. It was only three grand a year fees before it went up to nine. Okay. So, <laughs> I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. Yeah. So I did MSc in photon science at the Uni of Manchester, which um, was me trying to transition over to physics. A lot of the stuff I did, like the stuff I enjoyed most in chemistry was, we did a lot of units called physical chemistry, which was like a a sort of mix. And I thought, oh, maybe this is for me instead. And I think it was actually really like that. Um, It was hard trying to learn a load of new maths um, that I'd never touched before and pass an MSc. But um, yeah, lots of interesting things on the way. Survived it. One of the guys at our work, he, um, sorry, Stuart Manderson, he uh, did a physics degree and he always says that... um, he's not surprised that the success of people that have done physics in the world of data science because yeah. you just have to understand large sets of data and make sense of them yeah like that's just a that's a physicist's job um but like not their only job so he said it's not surprising that when someone comes into data that they just love that part of it it teaches you a funny way of thinking as well it's like a lot of physics is this is me massively generalising now, but a lot of physics is like, here's a model or a problem and you're taught immediately to go to the extremes and try and break it. Yeah, okay. And, and then it's at that point you might learn something new or whatever. And I think that really works in data science. That's quite a useful um, 
mindset to have. Uh, it can make you really annoying though to a lot of other people. <laughs> um, and it was in, it was during that that I start I first learned to code. So. Oh, okay. What did you pick up first? What was the, the language of choice? C, unfortunately. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my. Uh, I was supposed to say MATLAB at that point. No, I was so straight to C. Yeah. My final. So my MSE project was in. Um, microcontrollers like energy scavenging microcontrollers that used to harvest wi-fi and, and bluetooth and radio to power themselves didn't have a battery they just powered up a capacitor with like these big antenna things and then uh, programming those microcontrollers in c to kind of take readings and then send signals back to some sort of hub uh, periodically when they had enough power that, yeah it was in at the deep end but I thoroughly enjoyed that Nice. And then, yeah, obviously when I went onto MATLAB, then it felt like I was flying, it was much easier. <laughs> <laughs> and then, obviously, you hadn't had enough of education at this point, so no. after a successful MSc, was there a, an obvious choice when it came to doing a PhD? Like, did it just follow on from the research? So, um, I I actually did an NGD, so I did an industrial doctorate at Thales and Strathclyde okay. um, and for me that was a little bit like okay I've wasted four years being a bartender I want to claw back four years work experience and get a doctor at the same time um, and so the interview was an actual fit I had really enjoyed the coding side of the MSc project and thought I, I quite like this so there was yeah an interview in um, modeling lasers over at Strathclyde and I, I took the chance and essentially yeah did numbers on the computer for four years yeah, so I've, I've seen you do a few talks and you talk about the lasers and it, it sounds incredibly cool. Um, and I think, if I remember right, you guys did some pretty like groundbreaking stuff, right? Like it hadn't been done before, is well, that right? Yeah, so I um, the stuff I'd done was on designing modelling lasers for um, manufacturing, basically. They, they built these very complicated optical systems and anyone that knows lasers well enough knows that they're actually very temperamental and quite difficult to use um, and they like to break. So making robust ones that can withstand like a lot of shock and stress and high temperature ranges, that's, that's quite a challenge. So I'd, I'd built a lot of stuff, a lot of it around MATLAB and ray tracing and things. And then uh, well, the kind of coolest sci-fi thing I did was the guys over at uh, Harriet Watt did... I'll show you to Harriet Watt, that's yeah. where I went. Guys over at Harriet Watt, so um, Professor Fatio's group, the Extreme Light group, did a... They built a camera that can see around corners. In, yes, in that's what time. I remember you talked about. Yeah, so there was a, a, a few groups around the world sort of trying this. They've done a lot of really cool stuff, but they essentially this thing could track movement um, for people outside of line of sight. And it so happened that the modeling I'd done for my sort of laser design, it wasn't a huge stretch to re sort of build it and retweak it so that it could model their situation. And that was really successful. And we, we managed to look at a load of um, like extreme cases, like test what's the maximum distance that the, the target can be and, and how strong does the laser need to be and things like that. And uh, yeah, I've got a couple of conferences out of that. So. Nice. So I think in my notes it mentions that you went on to Thales to continue the work, but that obviously isn't right. So you were working at the same time. Yeah, and yeah. Did you just so stay there once the everything was kind of completed? No, no. So so yeah, the entity is really interesting in that you, you work full time at a business um, doing research. So I was essentially a Talis employee getting paid for by Epsurg um, and part paid for by Talis. Oh. Uh, you, you do research and then you get to write that research up as your thesis at the end and 
University of Strathclyde, give you a doctorate. And there's a load of industrial doctorate centres around the UK. Um, it's becoming more and more popular. There are data science ones. I think there's a data science one in Manchester. Yes, I think you're right. And I think and I'd highly recommend it anyone that's thinking about a career because you'll get a lot of industry experience and you, you get all the letters as well. Do you think it's more important, not more important because that's going to sound like we're like shitting on PhDs, but do you think it's potentially more effective doing it that way because sometimes people can almost get stuck in academia and I don't mean that in a negative way like a lot of the people we've helped um, get into data science have come straight from academia and they've noticed throughout their PhD that the next step is definitely going to be industry so maybe if they just went into that route they might have enjoyed it more potentially or maybe they don't know what to do in industry and they end up in academia forever I, yeah, so I have a, yeah, I, I strongly agree. I think that having that industry experience has been really, really valuable to me. Like a lot of the people I know that went into straight into industry after the PhD had never dealt with project managers or budgets. Like dreaded really, project manager. Yeah, really defined timescales, things like that, like commercial viability, trying to get sign off for stuff. A lot of, you, you can almost be guilty of having that like infinite time frame, infinite budget mindset in a yeah. PhD because as long as you're producing papers, that's fine. Whereas when there are strong deadlines or there's people really stressy about like stuff happening in a certain way, that that's really valuable. So, and I, I highly recommend an NGD or, or doing some industry experience um, as and when you can. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, one of the, I think we'll get onto this because you've talked about it a lot in uh, some of the talks I've seen. But there's a guy that I know down in Manchester. Um, a quick shout out to Liam Fulton as well. Um, very smart physics PhD that's went into data science in a similar capacity to you. But he talked to me years ago now about if you don't add value early mm-hmm. in industry, you're probably struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so he worked for a large. Um, car buying website that sometimes buy your car and sometimes don't they he worked for marketing basically as a data scientist and he said I needed to find the best way of just quickly getting someone higher up than me on board yeah so he didn't do anything particularly cool um, he's not going to get any sort of prize in science for it um, but he added business value very quickly and then he got them to trust him and then he managed to just kind of not do what he wanted but he did he could then do the so-called cool data science work, yeah. um, which maybe you won't understand if you've not worked in industry and worked with project managers, the budgets, the deadlines. Because um, at the end of the day, people are paying your wages for you to get something from it, mm-hmm. which is maybe not always true in academia. So yeah, the one of my, in a job I had previously, the, the most valuable thing I did was plot some data. So they, they had so much data in their transaction record that uh, it was like, tens of gigabytes no one in their business could plot it, it just you couldn't plot it in excel so you couldn't plot it so they, they didn't have a great understanding of who was buying their product because that wasn't their skill set they weren't super technically minded being able to plot them and show them and split the demographics up they managed to cut um a cost by about 70 percent, which happened to be a lot more than what they were paying me so from that point onwards I was kind of free resource to them I'd, I'd paid my way and anything else I did added value and that like I don't know. I always joke. Early lesson. Yeah, it was it was a way of getting people on board, and I joke now in a lot of my talks that when you start somewhere new, if you're the only data scientist and you are struggling with that buy-in piece, pick like the CFO or the finance director, and just automate away two or three hours a week of their work, and you'll have a good pal there because they're probably forever, yeah. and they're probably the person with the checkbook. That's yeah, it's going to sign off on other stuff. I will get on to how 
who data scientists report into. That's a good point. Like, make someone like that your friend. Mm-hmm. So once you've done more research work, uh, or finished that rather, you move into what were you called a data scientist, or have you just changed that now because that's what it was, or were you hired as a data scientist? Yeah, no, I was. Yeah, cool. So I it was only a few years ago, actually. So yeah, that makes sense. Towards the end of my doctorate, I toyed around with some machine learning stuff and built a thing that kind of designed its own lasers. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I really enjoyed this. I wanted to do more of that. And um, all the hype was starting to build. So I I fell on the hype train like everyone else. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, saw um, Sure Thing over in Bridgerton and had a whale of a time there in a really interesting... I I kind of... Working at Tallers was great, but I really felt that the huge... It's such a massive organisation. It's got like 70,000 employees. Yeah. Like, makes billions a year. The the pace of things was quite... It's a really old business. The pace of things... I, I didn't feel that suited me, so I thought, right, and I went to the complete opposite extreme to this like early stage startup. So that was um, clear returns, right? Which was clear returns, yeah. yeah. And they had a great idea, um, just struggled trying to convince other people that they were right. Yeah, I've listened to you talk about them, and I, it's such a good idea. And yeah. it's so funny, so working in an office, the amount of times I see people ordering packages and mm-hmm. specifically clothes from like ASOS or whatever, and those people then send it all back. Or indeed, I do have friends that will remain nameless uh, <laughs> who have been known to wear clothes on a night out. Um, always, almost always yeah. female, by the way. Uh, and send them back. So um, and you were saying that they were called. Where, I think they're called wardrobers, if I remember. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got a name, right? Yes. So, so that was it. Key returns could identify these people, then cluster them, identify them. Shout out to Regina and Vicky. Um, and yeah, so you had wardrobers that are negative lifetime value customers. They they literally cost your business money, but yeah. because sales and marketing aren't aren't tied into that returns cost, yeah. then it's no one's like no one's bonus is getting paid on lowering returns. Yeah, right, so returns just come into the factory and get chucked back somewhere. Like no one's eventually fine to pay for it. Yeah, Whereas someone is is paid a bonus if they make more sales or yeah. get more leads so you convince them yeah you show them the numbers yes these people are costing you any money yeah and then you're trying to convince a sales director to not hit his target yeah almost so like yeah. it was just really tricky and you had to convince so many stakeholders it was it's a shame because it's it's a brilliant it was a brilliant product i think you almost need like one massive customer and go to everyone else and say listen we saved x mm-hmm. retailer seven million quid on returns and then people would just be like oh okay but no, I, mean, I like when you talk about that. I mean, it's funny looking at all the... I mean, my wife orders everything in two sizes. It sends normally all of it back. Yeah. But yeah. we probably have free delivery on all these places. Or what you said, it's like, like a negative lifetime value. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas, yeah, I don't get any special offers, but I keep everything I order. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I should get more special treatment. But then, yeah, you moved on from startup world, which I imagine was very different from academia, Thales, uh, into insurance. Yeah, so sure thing actually insurance, as, uh, sorry, a startup as well. Oh, was it okay? Uh, early-ish stage, um, still had like 100 folk. They were mm. So they'd all worked in, the, the people that ran that business had all been very successful in other insurance businesses and yeah, wanted to kind of build out a, a really positive kind of insurance environment. The, the customer service was at number one and we were hired into the pricing team to try and make that a little bit more competitive, start doing some interesting stuff around um, all the weird and wonderful sort of data you get in insurance and yeah, yeah you, you mentioned that like the the level the stuff of data people yeah and like I mean I I think with the job I do and having access to people like you like I think I understand that 
everyone that I've ever bought anything from probably knows more about me than like mm-hmm. my folks do. But it's still crazy when you were saying, what is it the comparison website? Like they get a hundred points about you or something. So like that. yeah, on the data we had from the big four comparison websites, um, when you when we kind of tied and merged all that in together, there were like nine hundred ninety six columns per quote. Just bonkers and uh, stuff they learn. And from that, you're telling these people everything about you. And a lot of people don't realize how easily accessible there are a lot of open data sets, like the census data yeah. and things like that, which you can very quickly build some quite um, funky models about people. Like we built a, a sort of demoed, a wealth prediction model that looked yeah. at, so you can get um, the boundaries of property from Ordnance Survey for every property in the UK. You can get open satellite imagery. So you can cut out the boundaries of every property and then feed all them through an image classifier to build a wealth prediction model that's taken all your car insurance data that you've put in. You've told me how much your car's worth, how many miles are on it, how many cars you own, how many people in your family. You've told me your job, your salary. You've now, I can now see your house, tell you, look at how much land you own and all that. And you can get some pretty scarily close to work like wealth prediction models it's, it's bonkers and people don't realise that's all out there no. it's free for people to go and find and was the idea behind the wealth prediction model to like charge people in potentially more deprived areas more for their insurance because they're more likely to have it damaged no it was more uh, so that, that's more just if you can get a good idea of someone's wealth you, you probably better understand whether or not they can afford the insurance they've just bought and things like that yeah, so you okay. have a big problem with like people buy insurance that's really expensive and then don't pay it after three months. Yeah, okay. But as a broker, you, you've bought that up front off of a, a big insurance company, yeah. so you're, you're at risk. Um, and it's just about minimizing risk and making sure people are, that risk is spread evenly and fairly. Um, it, it wasn't put into production, that thing, but it was- Which is an example of something- It was something we do. built, and we were quite shocked at how good it was. Yeah. And was this, was sure thing where you found the first like negative application, not from, them, but like the negative applications of data science. Was that right from one of the top I heard secrets? some, yeah, so I heard some horror stories about like, um, so the, our pricing director had a lot of experience in the, in the industry and like insurance has been around forever. Yeah. Um, and he'd heard, yeah, he'd heard some weird and wonderful stuff that just made you shake your head. The, the kind of scariest of which was the Scrabble score metric and how calculating the Scrabble score of someone's surname you could use that coefficient to to increase price because there's this belief that people from Eastern Europe and I always say I get away with this because my granddad was from Eastern Europe. <laughs> but people from Eastern Europe. Your Scrabble name is quite low though, apart from the K. Well, yeah, see, it's got K in it, so that's it. A lot of people from Eastern Europe have lots of Z's and Y's and K's in there, yeah. and there's a correlation or a belief that that there's a higher risk. So you can't price based on where someone's from, but you can price based on how many K's there are in their surname. And it's, like, and it's that where you think, okay, that's why I do a lot of stuff and talk about ethics because yeah. it's so, so easy to just abuse all this kind of stuff for the wrong reasons. I think ethics is probably the hardest thing I've tried to get my head around in the whole data science mm-hmm. world because as soon as I think I'm on one side of the fence, I'll read something else and I completely change my idea. So like, I read a lot about it and I, I really like it. One of my best friends actually lectures at Leicester on ethics and philosophy and uh, I have conversations with him and then I'm just blown away and I'm just like, oh man, I don't know enough. Like it's always, always, always want to learn more. The one I always read about and the one that, I don't know if I've come up with an answer for it yet, but it's the whole like driverless car thing. And it's like who, is, is it, I think I remember what it was. I think it's taken from an old um, ethics yeah, thing. The like, yeah, the trolley yeah. problem. Yeah, the trolley problem, yeah. 
um, and it's like which one does yeah. the car hit and like you, there isn't an answer no. I'm sure there is a, probably a right answer in some way and it's also I think is a whose responsibility is it as well mm. if you're sitting in the passenger seat while the car's driving by itself yeah. is, it, is it your responsibility and that's it it's, that, it's the, the difference between allowing harm to happen or actively causing harm Mm. And yeah, yeah there's no, there is no wrong answer. The problem is, though, we now have to codify an answer into something that can have a very real. It, as a thought experiment, it's fine. It doesn't matter if you can't come to a conclusion. But, yeah, if it's actually going to happen, though. But you're building a car that needs to make the decision. Where do you sit? Yeah, we've had um, one of our first Scott ML event, actually. We had um, one of the guys from 5AI who are doing driverless cars down in Cambridge, and one of the researchers from Edinburgh Uni. And uh, he was showing you all the problems. And this, we didn't even touch ethics. Um, but he was showing you all the problems of what does a car recognise mm-hmm. as like an issue and it's like a car might recognise something that isn't and it slams on the brakes and causes a crash from behind or whatever mm-hmm. and like there's so many things that it's actually the technology of a car driving itself is actually really easy Yeah, it's everything else mm-hmm. and people people are just going to ruin everything <laughs> um, trying to predict what individuals are going to do is very difficult from oh, my yeah. experience um, so after Sure thing, uh, Incremental Group, which is uh, where you're now the data and AI director, mm-hmm. but when you first joined them, did they have a data science team? So they had a fledgling data science team, yeah. We um, started, um, we, we had a few projects in flight when I, I began here. I was lucky enough to start the week after they moved into our lovely new office. So, oh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's good fun here, and it's a really nice part of town, so happy about all that. And yeah, we were quite. It was quite funny because we there were data science projects, but the, we weren't really too involved with the rest of the business. It was like we were the nerds sat in the corner for a bit, and it was. It's funny that you're the nerds in an IT business. Yeah, so that's yeah. where data science kind of goes to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now it's been great. We've had a lot of opportunities to meet some really interesting sort of people. We learn a lot about industries. I found that like, so I yeah, I'd gone from massive companies to a couple of startups and thought that maybe somewhere a little bit more in the middle and like and I don't know if you could still call incremental a startup, it's still young, but it it was very much beyond that phase. I think some of the companies in Scotland that call themselves startups who are twenty five years old. I think yeah. I think you guys would still get away with it. Yeah. I mean you're a bit too big now, but big I suppose size doesn't mean you're not a startup. Yeah. Um, no, it's funny, but yeah, though and coming here it was it was great for me because it was like towards the end of my, when I was doing lasers, I realised that I didn't care so much about the domain as I just liked doing numbers on the computer. And yeah. and data science is really good for that. And one of the big draws of the whole career is that I feel that I can come into any business, any organisation, if you give me the data and a bit of an understanding, I can probably show you something or, or tell you something you didn't know. And that's really, I think that's really cool and quite exciting. And so consultancy was just a great fit for me because I get to be really nosy and I get to see loads of industries. And, and you can take one really good idea from energy and then use it in childcare charities and make those links that other people, like, you don't know what you don't know. I think from a consultant's point of view, what I've learned from speaking to people like you and a few other um, companies that we've helped out, that it's not all the sexy stuff. So that whole thing, I so the talk was here, right, at Scott ML. Um, where one of the people was talking about um, how to hire a data science team and the first slide was sexiest job title of the 21st century. Thanks for that. Because yeah. it's, it's potentially made, in a good way, it's made people want to get into the industry, so no complaints. But in a bad way, I think people don't understand that sometimes you're going to be doing things that aren't especially yeah. fascinating. But like you said, it's 
doing numbers on a computer. So you're actually doing what you want to do. But there's other people who want to get in and they want to build things that have never been done before or they want to, I don't know, they just like they think it's going to be some groundbreaking thing that will get them like a Nobel Peace Prize or whatever. And it's just like sometimes you're just making a tool hire company slightly more efficient with yeah. their stock. And that's actually really good because they're going to pay you several like yeah. th- hundreds of thousands of pounds potentially and it's, you're doing the same job but you're just adding some value like we talked about earlier so I always like again I joke that data scientists can do anything slower and more expensively than everyone else <laughs> but you can kind of do everything like you've got like yeah I could build your database but it'll probably take longer and it might not be as good as if a DBA did it or something super experienced SQL guy but and I, I often find them, especially as a consultant, you go in and customers have that expectation as well. They're like, right, we want to do an AI. And you're like, right, okay. <laughs> and that isn't the most valuable thing for them then. And a lot of my talks, if you've seen them, are about foundational stuff and making sure you put all the building blocks in place so that actually when you get to that do an AI stage, you, you can get value really quickly and you, you don't get all those frustrations. And also like building this kind of stuff can take a long time and there's no guarantee that it's going to work and if you take these big monolithic projects and and get to the end of it you can lead to a lot of frustrations if you're not delivered value whereas if you're doing little little bits and like automating some data flows or building a report that is spat out now in real time as opposed to once a month you're you're giving value over and again getting buy-in and earning trust so that by the time you get to the end of the research part of the project actually you've kind of paid for yourself already yeah no I remember there was a story and I can't remember for me who it was but they had an issue with like a big a big company who had lots of stock and the issue they thought was something and the data team were a bit perplexed by it and they did do a little bit of the starting something and realised that maybe it wasn't that mm-hmm. so they actually went into the kind of like uh, factory for lack of a better word and looked at a few things that they actually do day to day and it kind of twigged a, a thought and they were like well maybe it's actually not this mm-hmm. maybe you need to fix X and they did a, a little trial run on it and then they rolled it out nationwide yeah. um, and that's one of those things like where they probably said we want an all singing and dancing machine learning project done for us um, we've seen all the cool things that competitors are down the road are doing when actually maybe they just needed some automation in yeah. their like inventory yeah. or they needed to know where their stock was or how much of their stock was out right now or whatever it was um, and it was just a really good example of something that isn't going to make the headlines like no. it's not going to be in BBC News um, no. it's not going to be in the next Terminator film um, or whatever uh, but it's actually a real business value you, is there any challenges to working in a consultancy like incremental kind of working with various customers and trying to add value in data science or do you think it, is it easier um I don't know, sometimes you, a lot of people you engage with are very like, reluctant or defensive in a way, and that, that you often get the conversation that straight away they're like, oh, no, 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 oh, we're not ready for AI. Yeah. And I almost like want to take AI off the table and take like change the the job title, the unit, the business unit name, because we're just there to help and just try and do stuff, an interesting thing like insights, automation, that kind of stuff. And you might not be ready for AI. And it's like, I'm, I don't care what tools you use to build my car as long as it gets me to the station. Like yeah. if, if it's AI or if it's some sort of basic Excel graph thing, as long as it gets me the result, who cares? And I think 
for me, a data scientist is that can do everything kind of stuff in that we just have a broad range of tools that we understand, okay, there's not just one thing in my toolbox. I'm not just using the hammer for everything. Yeah. I, I know. And one of the big advantages of being here is that actually I don't have to build a database for you because there's there's like 25-year experience database guys that MVPs do that. MVPs from Microsoft. Yeah, or uh, Craig Porteous MVP. I have to mention that every time he said, since contracting. Um, <laughs> it's... We can rely on a really broad. We've got a lot of specialists. We've got this like a, a big mix of specialists. So, yeah, you don't have to be the kind of jack of all trades. You can start to specialize in into just AI and things like that for the data science side because we're going to lean heavily on the other skill sets when we need them. I think one of the biggest things I took away from some of the talks that you've done and and a, and a couple of other people is that kind of like snobbery in data science. So I, I had a chat with a data science professional services guy, and he asked like what do you think about if you don't hire like PhDs to be a data scientist and I just said it was moronic if you only hire PhDs and you miss all the other talent pool but that wasn't really the point it's more that there is sometimes a use for like what you said earlier like a little a quick Excel like solution rather than like loading up Python and doing something really complicated like you don't yeah. you don't have to do that and I think that's maybe something that's wrong with maybe fledgling data scientists or maybe uh, those kind of like more snobby data scientists where they, it always has to be like cutting edge. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't. And I think one of the things you mentioned a lot is you can actually use tools built by, your words, not mine, smarter and people with bigger pockets. Um, yeah. So the Microsoft and Amazons of the world are doing a lot of this stuff and they're probably throwing millions, if not hundreds of millions at it. So why are you going to sit in an office here and waste time by building some new machine learning model that you don't really need to do. Yeah, so there was a slide I did that showed that I think there's over, over 8,000 people work for the AI part of Microsoft, <laughs> which is more than everyone that works at Netflix. Like, they I don't have a PhD in natural language processing, yeah. but I can leverage tools that are built by a team of people with PhDs in natural language processing. Mm. And I would joke that, and, and it's fun, the problem is it's fun to do that top end stuff. And oh, yeah, in, all of the, in all the courses you do, like you are taught to build this stuff from the ground up and that's great fun and Coursera is good for all that. So you get this expectation that that's what you're going to do day to day. And you, you, I've seen a lot of like CV development, I call it, where people will use a tool because that's the tool they want to add to their CV. Yes. And it still gets the results, but like sometimes there's a quicker route. And I always like, again, joke about glue gun and sellotape being my favorite tools. Like I'm, I'm not there with precision instruments all the time building really fancy, complicated stuff. Most of the time I'm sticking other people's hard work together. I think the thing about CV is that much interesting because you obviously, we're going to get onto kind of building the right culture and hiring people at incremental for your team. But, a big issue we have in the, the industry I work in is that clients often want a data scientist, but they must have, like, they must have NLP experience, they must have this specific, um, like, library and have done something in the real world with it, not just been around with it. And it's, like, my opinion on it, and rightly or wrongly, is that if you're a very good data scientist, or even potential data scientist, that's not the hard bit. Like, mm -hmm. the hard bit is do you know what to do with all of this data? Can you turn it into something? And can you pick up new tools because it's all evolving mm -hmm. so quickly that what you did 20 years ago at the investment bank is probably not relevant anymore. But are you good enough to add to those skills? Probably yes. So 
by really focusing on one area of like this huge world that is data scientists, then I don't really get it. But yeah. when when you've spoken and a few other people have spoken, like that's not the focus. Like you don't really care what tool they've used. No, and I think as well, like there's a people miss the boat on how valuable it is to put your hand up when you're stuck and just say, yeah. or highlight your own weaknesses and that's say, just not in data either. That's just in your career. Yeah, no, and I think it's actually there's this. I think because you're given a lot of like academic authority as a data scientist especially if you've done all the qualifications and all that and you're then a lot of people that are then a bit scared to say actually no I don't know this or I can't do this yeah there's a, there's a lot of power in just saying no this isn't my skill set this isn't our forte there's another way of doing this or you might be better at this so it's like like I talk about databases over and over again but you 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 probably know your data better than I do so don't pay me loads to rename columns and look for zeros in it because I I don't know if they're supposed to be there or not. You could probably do that bit up front. Yeah. We like we don't want to do the easy stuff for you. We we want to come in and again all that. We want to do the hard stuff. And we're happy to do the the, the boring, unsexy stuff. But Yeah, if it's needed. If it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. But admitting that things aren't your skill set and aren't your forte, I think just builds a better relationship with whoever the stakeholder is. And is that what you've managed to when you've been kind of building that culture or hiring people for this team? Like have you managed to instill some of that into the kind of data and AI team at incremental like are they all happy to put their hand up when they're stuck or when you are speaking to, to clients and, and kind of tell them they're wrong seems like you're being aggressive but like helping them along the way of just not doing what they want for the biggest paycheck yeah I think so um, it, it's always quite tricky I, I feel that actually some of our team are the other way and have a little bit of a confidence problem in not knowing they're as good as they are yeah okay um, but it's about being part of the team and, and being able to say, no, look, we as a team are responsible for this and yeah, we can do that. And going the other, yeah, going that, that other way. I'm, I'm glad there isn't that sort of air of, it's sort of snobbery, data science snobbery here. It's, but we're still growing and who knows where we'll be as we grow. I think you're getting it right though in terms of like, it's good people doing good work. And if there's a team culture to it, then even better. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of data scientists, and I think that's maybe one of the pools of working for a consultancy or, or a company like a consultancy, that it's one of the few chances just now, it might change, where you can work with five, six, seven, eight plus data scientists. There's a hell of a lot of people that work with one, mm -hmm. or they are the data scientist, and they've been brought into a company that don't need a data scientist. Yep. Um, or they've been brought in to work with a junior data analyst, and there's no data. Um, there's a good, um, a good friend of mine in Manchester who got hired to a company and got told they could do whatever they want with data as the senior data scientist and they went in and there wasn't any mm -hmm. and it was just like well, can you not just like create some stuff and he kind of just laughed and just like I don't know what you mean yeah and those people are going to leave like they're not yeah. going to stick about yeah no he has left and I think when you work for a consultancy or you work on a slightly larger team you bounce ideas off people and you can learn stuff like maybe you don't have that NLP knowledge but the other person does um, so yeah I can see I can see the allure of like a team like this I'm sure you've been asked this constantly alongside the ethics question is everyone going to lose their jobs <laughs> um, because of AI not just because generally nothing so to do with Brexit or anything Craig Patterson from the Data Lab was at an event um, a while back that I was at and he said something I really liked he talked about how on this question how jobs are made up of tasks and 
automation, I believe automation is great and we should do more of it. And he said, yeah, jobs are made up of tasks. Um, yes, we're going to automate away some tasks, but that just means we have to find other tasks to put into that job. Yeah. And well, you mentioned the CFO earlier. Like if you can automate a CFO's job to a certain degree and they save a little bit of time mm-hmm. doing something that's probably quite boring, but they just have to do. Yeah. You're not going to lose the CFO job. You're probably going to make them better. And so I think as well, and quite rightly so, people do worry and it sells newspapers as well like to that we're going to actually automate away a lot of the early career jobs a lot yeah. of stuff so that we're gonna there's gonna be more income disparity and things like that but what i'm more interested in is yeah find the the busiest people that never have enough hours that that actually want you to take three or four hours off their week or want you to automate away something they're doing because they're never, like you said, they're never going to go anywhere. The CFO's not going anywhere. But yeah. if you can do all his reporting for him at the click of a button, he's there. He can now spend his rare, scarce, expensive skill set doing other more valuable stuff to grow the business. Yeah, and I think people do worry about that kind of like, I don't know the right word for it, but the kind of like menial or like first entry level jobs or whatever being taken away. But I just think like there was a good example, and I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, but like McDonald's have been sitting on like AI for ordering mm-hmm. for like years. Was it you talked about that? It was in the um, Herald um, talk I showed Oh, that, yeah, okay. And it's excellent. It's unreal. It's much more accurate than the human. Yeah, and, and you'll still need humans at various points of a McDonald's store. Yeah. They're just not doing that part. And also like McDonald's, like that is a customer service business. They're, yeah. you, they're not going to get rid of the human element. They no. just won't. I think people worry about this a bit more than they should. Um, because the other side of it being exactly it sells newspapers but the other side of it is as well well, I've seen lots of projects that have tried to extract the expert from the process or or try and automate completely automate away a process that requires some some sort of intelligent person to have a think and they're actually really difficult to do well and often under under deliver over promise as a my advice to like anyone sort of thinking, oh, what should I do next? Would be don't don't ever try and take the person out, but try and keep them involved. And there was an example about doctors we were talking about the other night that there was an AI that was really good at diagnosing um, certain conditions, but people were like, well, we don't want to get rid of the doctors, and so they formed a council of like I think it was seven with six real doctors, and the seventh person was the AI. Yeah, and those six then look at the recommendations from it and have an equal weighted say which I think is a much better way of doing it because that's that AI is going to start spotting things that perhaps the humans aren't is and it's going to do what computers are good at look at loads of numbers really yeah, quickly yeah loads of patterns really quickly yeah I think my favourite example just because of where I work is that AI is going to replace like recruitment either specifically talking about agency recruitment or just like the hiring process it's such bullshit like well, there's so many tech platforms and apps and businesses people have started to replace recruitment <laughs> none of them have worked none of them have been any good because it's a very like human decision mm-hmm. to move job so if you're just automating all of it then where's the buy-in like where's the like sometimes taking a pay drop is not a bad thing yeah good luck from an ai trying to tell a human that yeah or sometimes they just need like a you need a confidence boost. You said some of your team don't have big confidence. So maybe they're interviewing at Microsoft and they just don't have, they just don't think they should be there. You need a human to tell you that you should be there. Exactly. Like an AI chatbot's not going to tell you that. Um, and maybe it will replace like the early stage of high volume, like graduate recruitment, where you can really sift through a lot of, a lot of things really quickly. 
Um, but I think like niche technical recruitment, like what we do, I just don't ever see that happening. Um, I think in the Herald thing, they had the Amazon example as well, mm-hmm. where they had millions of examples of data, but it was biased data that it learned yep. from. So it was doing the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Um, yeah, it just hired more. Hired more white, white men. males. Yeah. yeah, because that's what it had always done. So you yeah. can only train on what is yeah. what what's available. Um, so yeah, those examples are hilarious, and it's always good fun when you see the next recruitment platform that's going to like replace either HR or agencies or like hiring managers. Like, oh, Adam never has to meet anyone. His team will just grow automatically now. And for me as well, I think, do you not think LinkedIn will have done it by now? Like, they're big yeah, enough, LinkedIn, like, yeah, the Microsoft by LinkedIn are one of the, yeah. and like, if they could do that, they would, they would do it. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Um, one of the things I spoke to in, uh, in the last podcast was, do you think that, essentially probably your job, you might argue this, but is the, the chief data officer going to be a must-have for companies in the next, when it, well, the future, from now onwards? Yeah, I think there was an interesting discussion about this on Wednesday night, actually, at an event that was at, and they, they were saying that in a lot of bigger organisations, like, data was served up by IT, yeah. and now there's maybe a new reporting function, and there's also maybe now a data function as well that's all slightly different, and no one is responsible for, like, joining all that up across the board. Yeah. Like, so you've got these siloed kind of sets of skill and and data flows and things like that there's no one individual in an organization that's actually responsible for ensuring the unique customer id that you've come up with is the same as the one reporting have come up with is the same as the one as this team have come up with yeah and are we re- like replicating effort so that's kind of the, what those chief data offices are or should be doing being responsible for the architecture the overall strategy making sure the little tactical bits line up with some sort of wider vision so that you're not replicating effort and all that i think that I mean, I don't think any role is essential, but I think yeah, we'll right start right. to see a lot more value by just taking that step back. I also don't think it needs to be a full-time role sometimes. I think having like a friendly person, an external or a mentor or someone like that, that could just give you that oversight, a, a regular check-in to, to ensure, are we doing the right things, following best practice, what the competition doing, that might even just be enough. Yeah. And you see a lot of people who, companies who have like interim CTOs, mm-hmm. or in fact, we've got an interim CFO, because we are not big enough to have a, a, a like heavy-hitting CFO sitting in the office every day. Yeah. But once a month, he, or however long it comes in, he can just advise us on best practice across yeah. finance. And I think data hasn't really caught up with that yet. So one of the big issues that I've found is that you come in as a data scientist, maybe as you're, you're the only data scientist, and maybe there is lots of work to do, but you... You might have found this as well. You sometimes you report into the chief marketing officer or the head of marketing because a lot of the time they have the most data. Yeah. Or if, especially if you're like in a consumer um, business, or the CTO because they've got the the word technology in their title. And yeah. I mean, not shitting on CTOs. They have a, they have a hard enough job as it is getting all the architecture and the I suppose the overall technology team sorted. And because data has links to that, it doesn't necessarily mean it is that. Um, yeah. Or the CFO, which maybe makes the most sense because, as we talked about earlier, they kind of hold the purse strings, and a lot of the data projects will either save or sometimes cost money at the first point to then eventually save money. Um, which is why I, that's why I thought the C, kind of CDO kind of made sense in a lot of companies, but I never really thought about it from like 
like a non-exec, yeah, like interim type thing, and maybe one person could advise a number of companies because mm-hmm. it's not really they're not really going to be getting hands-on. It's more like an advisory role. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested, I'm sure you get in touch with me after the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if anyone wants to be Chief Data Officer. Anyone wants to be... Chief Data Officer, yeah. <laughs> do it. So just before we wrap up, what, uh, what does 2020 look like for your team, Incremental, uh, and kind of how does, how does that look from a data point of view? Yeah, really exciting. Um, we've just opened the Manchester office. Um, I'm, we're quite kind of... Was that all because of you? Because no, you, you, no, need, you need to be in Manchester at some no, point. I just A little piece of my heart does live in Manchester. But the... I'm not from there and I agree with that. Yeah, oh, it's great. It's a great it's place. A good place. Glasgow's good, but Manchester's where... Edinburgh's top, but we'll, we'll move on. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. so twenty. Yeah, no, we opened up in Manchester. Um, so really excited about that. We're kind of fortunate that... Well, I kind of mixed blessings, I think, but... The whole data and AI team are all live in Glasgow at the moment, um, which is great because we're all really close. We all know each other, but really keen to sort of expand into our other offices because we've got we're up in Aberdeen, we're down in London, we're in Manchester. So it'd be good to yeah break into that and have an excuse to go down. Yeah, basically. But we've got a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, some big big projects coming up that we're really excited about. So watch this space. Hoping to get some more sort of talks and industry stuff going out and run a few more events. We've got some weird and wonderful ideas so it's all looking good we've got the third floor in Glasgow now as well so we've got another 80 odd desks to fill up down there that's amazing yeah so big big plans would you quite like the fact of like running a, a kind of cross city or yeah. a team like having the chance to tap into different knowledge and I mean obviously Manchester has sort of amazing talent London obviously is just a big melting pot of talent which is good and bad yeah it just seems like it would be it makes sense just to have it, yeah. like, everyone everywhere it's, for me as well, it's just like, especially being an English guy up here, in that Scots like to buy from Scots. Do you find that? Yeah, I think it's true. And it's the same in Manchester. I think like people from wherever you are, you like to be dealing with people from where you're from. Like, I've been like super you. lucky. So I started our Manchester division and honestly, it, the, the people in Manchester could not be nicer. Like, see if, like, if I like pinged a message to someone in Edinburgh and said, like, let's grab a coffee. I want to just talk to you about our new office. Like we've just started in Edinburgh. Like... I reckon nine out of ten would probably be like, oh yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> in Manchester, like the first three four months of me setting it up, like I met people, like I chat people. We went out like on the piss, yeah. like just with like young startup founders who just like they wanted to tell me about their business, they wanted to tell me about Manchester, they wanted to tell me like yeah. the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I, I loved every minute down there, so I, I had no doubts that kind of if you were growing a team down there, then it would be really successful. Um, but yes, yeah, so no, it's a great place, super friendly. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I'd be keen to, and I think you just, again, you get that, it's the diversity, the team diversity of, of even locale, like having yeah. different mindsets, different places, different experiences, I think that adds a lot to a team as well. Yeah, goes. I think, and this is going to be controversial because I'm a white male, but everyone talks about diversity, and I think people have got really lost in that only being gender. Um, there's some amazing initiatives to get women into technology, and quite rightly so. Um, some of the best data scientists I've found for our clients have been women, and they speak at a lot of our events, and they're unbelievable. What we're maybe not great at our events is like ethnic diversity, mm-hmm. or like what's their background? Like, are yeah. they all? Do we just get PhDs to speak? Like, when was the last time I had a self-trained data scientist speak at one of our events? I don't actually know the answer. So, so actually, on that, we talked again. Talked about this Wednesday night. I was introduced to a thing called Pass the Mic. Um, look it up, but it's. Um, 
it was I was talking about how you get invited to speak all the time and yeah, I get invited to speak at diversity events, but being a straight, cisgendered white male, I don't think it's really my platform. And there were good arguments for why I should and why I should stand up and, and try and talk, but talk, I was told about pass the mic. And the idea is that, yes, if you are brought an opportunity to go and speak, you could look up, you sign up to pass the mic, and there's a list of people that have registered their skill sets and you can actually reach outside of your network to say, oh no, look, here's a really good person here that would be better suited for this this discussion. So I'm definitely going to start looking at that in the future and seeing what we can do. Yeah, it's, I think it's, I know what you mean about the, when, when you're talking about gender, but we've not, we've not got any of it right yet. So no, exactly. So we shouldn't just focus on one, like let's do all mm-hmm. of it. I think that's a big thing for this podcast. Like I don't want it to just be like, not like a boys club, I don't mean that gender wise, but just like my inner circle of like people that I know quite yeah. well. And it's a great place to start, but mm-hmm. I'd love to have the opportunity to like have something like past the mic where someone like you says, have you thought about chatting to this person in like Brighton? Yeah. And it's like they are, they're doing some amazing stuff. They've got a really interesting story. Like let's, let's tell it. Um, which is the thing, it's a big reason why I actually started this, was to be able to tell the stories of people who maybe don't want to speak at our events, and people don't want to speak for loads of reasons, like mm-hmm. childcare, like they don't want to stand up in front of a big group, like they, like a Thursday night doesn't suit them, like whatever the reason, it's always got alcohol and, and food, so they don't like that environment, like whatever it is, it doesn't really matter, like I, that's one of the big reasons this is here, is to try and tell stories in a slightly different way, mm-hmm. and maybe let people have the opportunity to talk at the events in the future. All right, just to wrap up, because you are a very busy man. Mm-hmm. Favourite question of the day that I was going to start with. From my research, because this is obviously a very professional podcast that I spend a lot of time on, uh, I found your Instagram page. Dear. Some very impressive gym-related workouts at a CrossFit box, another terminology. Oh so if you're a CrossFitter and a data scientist, what do you tell people first? <laughs> well, to be honest, what I, I don't think you could call what I do CrossFit. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. hoping you didn't say what you call what you do is not called data science. That'd be much worse. Yeah, that would be. Worse. No, uh, yeah, I was um, I was a big boy a few years back. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't very happy and all that, and um, it just turned out that going to this gym and getting mercilessly mocked by a big group of people was the right motivator for me. <laughs> um, no, I've heard nothing but good things about CrossFit community. No, the community is really strong and it's a great bunch of people. I needed some for me, I needed someone to outsource all my motivation to. So like I get complete abuse if I don't turn up. Um which works for me. So it has done ever since. I'm a slightly less big boy now. So it's, <laughs> it's all good. No, that's brilliant. Uh, all right, well thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully people will uh, reach out and make you their chief data officer in the future. <laughs> no, thanks very much, it's been great. That was a lot of fun. Adam was a super easy guy to talk to. Um, one of those people that is just incredibly unassuming, even though he's essentially a genius. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, thank you to our sponsors um, and my employers, Cathcart Associates. Please do give us a like, a comment, share, anything at all that you think we can improve on in the podcast or someone you would like to listen to. But until next time, thank you very much.